Welcome everyone to another of Shared Ireland's podcast. Today we're joined by Dr. Margaret Ward. Welcome, Margaret. Hello. Margaret, could you tell us a little bit about your early years for anyone that possibly doesn't know you? And I suppose what helped shape your thinking? All right, so I'm um, slightly complicated, I guess. Um, we, we, en- we enjoy complicated. <laughs> my accent might give the impression that I'm not Irish, but actually I've lived in Belfast since 1963. But my uh, father was from Dublin and my mother from Mayo. And uh, in the 1930s, my father went over to uh, Britain and joined the British Army. So I was an army brat for my early years. I didn't live in England, but we lived in lots of army, British army bases in Germany and other places. Did did I hear you right before we hit the record button here that you were actually born in Germany, is that correct? And I was born in Germany, that's right, yes. So um, we came then, my father retired and in, in 63 and we came and settled in Belfast. But in fact, my, my cousins still live in, in Mayo, and um, I have cousins in, in Dublin now, although they're the Mayo cousins who live in Dublin. And I'm the only member of the family left in the north. I've, but, I've, but, but as a typical Irish family, I have a brother and sister in Australia, and I had a brother in Scotland. You know, it was, you know we were growing up during the Troubles, and, and people left. I was the only one who stayed. So you're a well-travelled lady. Yes. With a wealth of experience, (laughs) (laughs) which hopefully our listeners will hear about today. Um, Margaret, you have a new book out, um, and it's about a lady called Hannah Shiki Skeffington. Did I pronounce that right? Can you tell our listeners what inspired you to write the book and tell us about Hannah's background, if you wouldn't mind? Sure. Um, this is a book that I first published in 1997, but this is going to be, it's very updated. There are loads more family um, papers now lodged down in Dublin National Library, particularly personal letters between her and her son and her and her husband, which weren't available to me on the first time. But I, I became interested in Hannah as a feminist in the 1970s when I was a researcher and I kept coming across this woman. Now she was born Hannah Sheehy. She met Frank Skeffington who in fact was brought up in Dan Patrick. So they're a north-south if you like um, couple and they amalgamated their names to Sheehy Skeffington uh, to symbolise the equality of their relationship when they got married. Very good. Which is why it can be hard to say, but Sheehy Skeffington eventually rolls off the eventually. tongue when, <laughs> when you've said it as many times as I've said yes. it. But she I, was, I'll keep practising. <laughs> she was our leading suffrage figure. She went to jail twice in terms of her suffrage activities. Um, um, what year are you talking about here? She went to jail first in 1912. Okay. And again in 1913. And um, last year we got, um, well, her, in fact, her granddaughter, Michelin Sheehy Skeffington, got Dublin City Council to put up a plaque on Dublin Castle to commemorate the first militant action by women because Hannah and her colleagues went and smashed windows in Dublin Castle. Other women smashed windows in the GPO and the Customs House, government buildings, but Hannah said she chose Dublin Castle because it was also the seat of British rule in Ireland. Okay. Um, and they got uh, jail sentences for those. Um, but she, so she, she was a, a, 
a feminist pioneer, but later on she was also a member of Sinn Féin. She was their director of organisation um, when they reorganised after the rising. And um, she went to jail other times. She was in jail in Armagh in 1933 um, after the Northern State was set up. The, um, the, uh, the Northern authorities, she was included in those banning orders that many Republicans uh, were. But she had the Skeffington relatives in the north, and she used to cross the border to visit them. But this was a time when um, two women, Republican women, were in Armagh jail, and she crossed the border to speak on their behalf, okay. knowing that she would probably yeah, be, arrested. be arrested. And she spent a month in Armagh for that. And when she was released, it was an incredible cavalcade from from the north down to, through uh, Drogheda and Dundalk, um, to greet her as she drove back through Dublin. She was a really big figure in those days. She edited Anfoblet for a time okay. when um, Padre Donnell was in jail, for example, right. and Frank Ryan. And had they children? They had one son, Owen, who became um, a senator in Dublin and was well... He had been a member of the Irish Labour Party for a while and they, they kicked him out for some reason. So he was an independent after that. But one of the few radical voices in, uh, in the Free State, particularly in the 50s and 60s, who um, always stood up for kind of human rights, was a, a terrific person. Um, but Hannah also stood for election in uh, 1943. Um, she, three years before she died, she stood on a Workers' Republic platform, okay. recalled Connolly, who was a good friend of hers, and, and stood for feminism and socialism. So she was a wonderful woman and, and deserves to be very well known. And did you say she died in 43? No, 1946. 1946. And what age was she when she died? She was just over 60. Oh, so, yeah. so relatively she, she just, young? Yes, she had a... Um, uh, her heart, I think, had been strained because she had gone on hunger strike on her two prison experiences in Dublin, but also her husband, Frank, had been killed by Captain Bowen Coulthurst during the Easter Rising. Frank was a pacifist oh, okay. and had been arrested when he, um, by this British major, um, taken out as a hostage around the streets during the Rising brought back to Portobello Barracks and that night he and two other journalists uh, were shot dead in the barracks and buried okay. in the barracks. Hannah wasn't told about what had happened to Frank. She finally got a court-martial and also in, in that August, when you think that Frank was only killed in April, by August she had managed to get a commission of inquiry into the deaths. When you think that many families here in the north have never managed to get an inquiry. Yes. You can see the force of her personality. She went over to London, had an interview with the Prime Minister, mm -hmm. was offered £10,000 compensation, which would have been at least a quarter of a million in today's, today's money. Moment, yeah. Refused that, okay. refused any money from the British, but insisted on an inquiry. Oh. The inquiry she still felt wasn't adequate, mm -hmm. so she went to America to publicise both the rising and what had happened in Portobello. I mean, Connolly, she had been um, elected a member of a provisional government. If the rising had been prolonged, they were going to set up a provisional government, and Hannah was told by Connolly she was going to be a member of it. She was told by Connolly that women's rights would be included in the proclamation. She was somebody who, she and Frank knew them very well. And anyway, she went to America for 18 months, traveled around, 
many of the states publicising what had happened, and um, but had had to smuggle herself and Owen over on a false passport because the British wouldn't give her mm -hmm. permission to travel. Yeah. Which meant when she came back, she finally managed to, to get permission to come back, but was arrested when she came back to Liverpool and refused permission to return to Ireland. She smuggled herself over to Ireland, was arrested and sent to Holloway Jail, where Constance Markovich, Maud Gone and Kathleen Clark were in jail. And she went on hunger strike again and got her release. So she was treated as... Um, uh, a villain by the mm. British government, even though she was a woman but, whose but husband clearly had been murdered. They, they respected her um, because she sounds like a woman that certainly didn't take no as an answer too often. She never took no as an answer, but I think that third hunger strike then, I think it had uh, repercussions on her heart later. Yeah, a detrimental yeah, effect yeah, on her yeah, health. Yeah. yeah, very good. That's very interesting. And I suppose while we're speaking about her and your book, where can your book be purchased for anyone that wants to? Well, the book is due back from the printers um, next week. Okay. So after that, hopefully, um, in terms of uh, the North Waterstones, uh, no alibis, I hope, um, other bookshops in the South, uh, Hodgkins and Figures, uh, and all good bookshops, I hope. And, and just remind me again the title of the book. It's called um, Fearless Woman, Hannah Sheehy-Skeffington, Feminism and the Irish Revolution and it's published by UCD Press. Excellent, very good. I wish you all the best with it, Emily. Thank you. Margaret, you're involved in the project A Century of Women. Uh, what are the aims and goals of this particular project? Would you mind telling our listeners? Yes, The Century of Women, um, if, if you just look that up or Google it, you'll find um, a website there that's devoted to women in the North um, through a, a, a huge front from the whole of the 20th century, so it starts at 1900, and, it, and we take each decade, yes. and what we've tried to do is do a timeline of events that particularly focus on women, and then uh, include short biographies of particular women. Um, and this really came about um, from a different project that I was involved in a number of years ago when I was the director of the Women's Resource and Development Agency. We got money from the Heritage Lottery Fund and we did a number of things with that money. One of them was that um, I wrote a booklet called Celebrating Belfast Women, which looked at Belfast and women's contribution and highlighted specific women. And you, could, you can take that and do a kind of walking tour. But we also trained a lot of women to be tour guides. Okay. And we also very cheekily renamed a number of streets around International Women's Day and put up street signs. So Royal Avenue was Mary Ann McCracken okay, Avenue. Yeah. Right. So we had done all of this to highlight the fact that women have made significant contributions to life in Belfast, not only politically, but through arts and crafts yeah. and all sorts of things. So I've always wanted a standalone website that could put all that kind of information uh -huh. together. So. What we hope, now that we've got Century of Women, that we can add to this by putting in things like the booklet and also other work that's been done so that it would be a one-stop shop because I'm so aware 
But a lot of the younger generation don't really read books. What they do is they go straight to the website for yes. information. It's true. You know, so, you know, I'm old school. I kind of still read books, but I'm very aware that um, yeah. not everybody does. And we want to make sure that the information is there. And that's what we're doing. We're encouraging. And, and, and if young women, say, want to do projects at school, for example, this would ah, be yes, a really absolutely. good place to go that, yeah. and, and, and find out the information. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that it will continue to expand and draw in more information. Very good. And keep adding to it as, and as keep life adding it Because you keep finding out more. It's been very hard to find out, for example, say women artists and yeah. writers. Um, but then you find out more as things happen or people tell you. So we're, we're trying to establish... Um, it's, it's under the umbrella now of a, of a women's group called Reclaim the Agenda, which is a number of women's organisations and individuals who came together a number of years ago, mainly to coordinate its, uh, International Women's Day activities in Belfast, but it's, it's gone much wider. It's, it fights against austerity cuts and their impact on women and things like that. So if, if um, Reclaim the Agenda can um, home Century of Women website, we, myself and Myrtle Hill, for example, as historians involved, can work and, and add the information. And in a hundred years' time, no doubt, there'll be a paragraph in it about your good self. Oh, well, I won't be around then. I hope it'll be a nice paragraph. <laughs> I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. Tell me this, Margaret, what lessons can modern Ireland learn from historical role models like Hannah and other ladies that, you know, had a, had a, suppose, a part to play in shaping who we are today? I think one of the things is, it, when, I, when I think of the suffrage movement, I think of it, um, how much they tried to keep it as a North... This is pre-partition, but there were still, you know, differences politically. But what they tried to do was to concentrate on the fact that regardless of what the future was going to be. I mean, at that stage, we didn't know whether we were going to have home rule, whether Ulster was going to opt out of home rule or whatever was going to happen. But what women, feminists like Hannah, were saying was we have to concentrate on women getting the vote in whatever the context. Mm -hmm. And quite a lot of unionist women who didn't want home rule still said, well, if, if, if <coughs> Ireland gets home rule, women have to have the vote in it. It's a whole principle of citizenship and of equality. So I admire their perseverance and persistence in very difficult circumstances and the fact that they were prepared to go to jail uh, for that. That's one thing. But also later on, um, Hannah wants, she joined Sinn Féin um, when she came back from America because she felt that was the most forward part of political movements, although the Labour Party and other organisations asked her to join. And whatever she did, she just did so well she you know she she but she always highlighted women's role so in Sinn Féin for example they were told that they they couldn't sideline women women were an important part of the organization and I think she she certainly had words with some of her male colleagues at times over those issues but she never so she never lost the focus on women being an important part of political movements. Do, do you think even today in 2018 is the role of women being underrepresented in all walks of life here? It certainly is. I mean, it, it has improved in some extent when you think of, you know, our election to the First Assembly here, women were 18%, mm -hmm. which is terrible. And um, I know we don't have an assembly, but in terms of 
the elected MLAs, it's about 30% now. It's still not enough, um, but it's starting to increase, and, and the visibility of women in what, what political and public life. To, uh, was it Monica McWilliams and the Women's Coalition? coalition. Whatever yeah. happened to them? Well, the, the Women's Coalition, I was a member of the Women's Coalition as well, and um, we, 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 when, we, when we talk about it now, we think it was, it, it was uh, something of its time. It was really necessary in terms of including women within the peace process yeah. because they weren't going to be included yeah. if women hadn't fought mm -hmm. for that. Um, and then two members were elected in the first assembly. And then, if you remember, this, the assembly was um, suspended for a particular mm -hmm. period of time. And when we came to canvas again... It was very interesting when I was going door to door canvassing. People would say how good the um, the women's coalition had been on social issues, particularly Monica, who was professor of social policy and worked incredibly hard as an MLA, and we were praised for the kind of constructive work we were doing. But people felt that because the constitutional issue had raised itself again, I was getting on the doorstep. Well, we'll give you a say a number two, but we now vote. Have to save day, yes, for example, yes. in terms of Trimble, or uh -huh. we need the men out now, and it, and um, research has been shown globally that when 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 you look at um, peace processes, women are, do very well if things are going okay, and women can be seen as being constructive and working and, and, and adding. But when it comes to difficulties, we still have this kind of we need the men. And, and, and I think that was what happened to the we, coalition. We, we need the man to continue the disruption. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, so we lost the women's coalition yeah. voice. But what we did get was that um, the other political parties, being aware of the fact that women were really vote winners, were putting women up in constituencies where the coalition were standing. Yeah. So it did help to increase the pool of women in different political parties. Mm. And as you know, Monica then went on to be a commissioner for human rights and continues to 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 be involved. She's now involved in that um, group, looking at um, paramilitaries and and, yeah. and all of that. Okay, very good. Um, there's a couple of maybe we points in my next question here, Margaret. In October, there will be a citizens' assembly on gender equality in the south. An excellent initiative which you referred to on Twitter recently. I suppose the first part of the question would be, why is this so important, do you feel? And the second, against the backstop of Brexit, citizens in the North have watched the South with referendums on same-sex marriage repeal the eighth. Um, it's become a more liberal, inclusive, and I suppose equal mm -hmm. society. Um, is the upcoming Citizens' Assembly in the South another example of how the North is lagging behind, do you feel? Yes, and in fact, you know, uh, at one stage, when you think of the Good Friday Agreement, we, we, we could have been ahead because we did have a civic forum. Right, right. And people forget the civic forum, and the civic forum was something proposed by the Women's Coalition, who were the, also the ones who put forward um, the need to recognise the, the needs of victims. Yeah. I mean, the two really constructive things that I don't think the other parties would have put forward and of course when the assembly got suspended the civic forum got suspended and the, the politicians didn't want it back yeah you know it was you know it was something that was gender balanced it it 
brought in all these different elements of civic society, precisely the kind of elements now who are trying to intervene on the Brexit issue um, as separate sort of strands. But the Civic Forum would have given us uh, a concrete voice in order to have done that. So I, I think it's greatly to be uh, to be missed and should be you know revived. But in terms of the so in terms of the South now, yeah. the fact that they've instituted citizens' assemblies in order to tease out difficult issues before they go to referendum, yeah. I think is so important because by the time you had in a referendum, for example, on repeal the eighth on abortion, people knew exactly what the issues were and what they were voting for. Yeah. It was very clear and they knew then what the uh, politicians would legislate for. And so the, the, the roles were very clear. One was an advisory role yeah. and then there's a legislative role. So what they're looking at in terms of gender equality, because there was this other issue about Article 41 in the Constitution and that very um, prescriptive and kind of anti-woman measure uh, in the 1937 Constitution about women giving um, you know, her life in the home being of the most importance. So there was a move to scrap that completely, and a lot of feminists wanted that. But then people started thinking a bit further about that. Do we want to scrap the whole issue about care in the home, or do we want to make it gender neutral and look at it um, again, and I think it's a really exciting opportunity to look at the care economy, to look at um, the provision of childcare, to look at all the unpaid work, for example, that grandparents do that maintain the economy. Mm, that's true. Um, the academic from UCD, Ursula Barry, spoke at um, Failure the other week on one of their um, re uh, discussions on United Ireland. And when they were talking about the British sub subvention and how much it costs to maintain the North, what it might be looked like in it in terms of a new Ireland. She was making the point that what, but a lot of women's work is unpaid work and it never features in terms of the national economy. And that, so bringing back the care economy and having that citizens' assembly in the South, I think, can be a really important issue to look at the future and to look at what our values are. Do you think, Margaret, that there is a real possibility that the North can be left behind here, you know, that we are one island, but yet, you know, 26 of the 32 counties are, as I said, you know, a more liberal, inclusive society, and there's a very real danger here that we will be left behind? I think so. Um, you know, it used to be that we thought that the, the 26 counties were dominated by Catholic values yes. and we kind of prided ourselves on being a bit more liberal up here. Mm. Um, and if you, if you look at the law, we're certainly not a liberal society up here, although that doesn't mean that many people living up here completely disagree with the legislation that we have at the moment and, and would, you know, want it to be different. But what I, what I think in terms of how the South is organising itself, um, what I think is so good is the fact that it's including the voices of people mm -hmm. through citizens' assemblies, through um, a really concerted effort to make sure that when, 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 when change is made, it's made with everybody, in a sense, being brought on board in order to then vote in a referenda. Yeah. Um, but we could be doing something 
very similar if we still had the, the Civic Forum, which was there agreed, um, proposed by the Women's Coalition, the Good Friday Agreement, agreed by the political parties, who then, when it was suspended, when the Assembly was first suspended, never brought it back. Um, and I think I've missed a huge opportunity, particularly now we're in such a, a crisis over Brexit and we have the different voices um, raising themselves, but, but they're not um, able to come together in a concerted way that something like a, a civic forum, which was supposed to be an advisory group of politicians, um, I think it would have helped us very much to see a way out of a lot of difficulties, whether it's uh, Brexit, but also in terms of um, abortion law reform and mar marriage equality as well. Um, I think it would have helped political parties to have heard in a, in a really structured way um, the voices of ordinary citizens. Do, do you, you mentioned their civic society. Um, what's the importance of hearing a voice from civic society, do you believe, Mark? And, and I suppose how can civic society drive change? Um, you know, recently, um, just speaking about, I suppose, equality and Brexit, um, there has been an initiative um, from a group called Ireland's Future, and it's a representation of national civic society, and they held an event in the Waterfront Hall at the start of this year. And I suppose there was voices from all across the island there, um, members from Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, Sinn Féin, SDLP, the Green Party, and others. And there was a sense that it was a start of, you know, I suppose, nationalism and their voice being heard and the concerns and fears about the possibilities of the unknown of Brexit. Do you think unionism needs to replicate this, possibly? Yeah, I was at that um, uh, waterfront uh, meeting. It was tremendous. I think I was trying to think when I've last been in such a big hmm. uh, Apart from maybe a rock concert, yeah, there or was between sixteen hundred and two thousand people yeah. there, I believe, on the day, yeah. and I suppose a broad section of the media covered it as well. Yeah, yep. Um, and I was meeting people I hadn't seen for ages, and it was a great excitement—the feeling that people were there to part to hear voices and 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 to participate. What, what, what was the message that you took away after being at that event? that it was only the first start of a process that will be a lengthy process. I mean, for example, the Alliance Party weren't there because they, their argument was that it was a, a discussion amongst nationalists. And I think they were wrong in that it was it, it was a discussion initiated by nationalists. And there's, a be, there, there's an important difference there. Very different, mm. yes. And, and so that there were people who, who, who wouldn't have defined themselves as nationalists who were there speaking. Um, and, 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 and it's so important to hear all the different voices. So I think that people, when people feel less um, threatened maybe by it, that it can develop more and, and more voices can be brought in. I mean, Fela this uh, year had a, a discussion on a new Ireland or United Ireland every day with different voices, different yeah. kinds of people. And um, we you know, started touching on areas that people hadn't thought about before and had a, a really wide range of, of people and you know you couldn't even get into some of those I mean, there's, there's such a hunger there no, to have that conversation yeah. I, th I think it's possibly unfair just to expect our politicians mm -hmm. to do all the yeah. heavy lifting yeah. you know 
we as ordinary members going about doing our everyday jobs, I, f- I suppose if you look on social media any day, we all love giving our opinions. That's so right. So I suppose civic society's opinions, it's important that they're heard. Well, I was thinking as well, I was involved in um, the Bill of Rights Forum, which had been set up as a kind of, you know, one of the outworkings of the, um, of the Good Friday Agreement. Um, to have this uh, forum that was then going to um, give advice to the Human Rights Commission on a Bill of Rights, okay. because the Bill of Rights had been mentioned within the agreement. And so in, around in 2007 and 8, um, a Bill of Rights forum was, was, was brought together by the Secretary of State and chaired by an Australian academic, Chris Sidoti, and you had representatives, three representatives from each of the political parties, but then you had representatives from civic society. So I was there for the women's sector, but you had, you know, children's sector, trade unions, etc., etc. And um, and that was really interesting, and I chaired the women's working group where we looked at all these different issues relating to women, whether it was bodily integrity, political participation, or whatever. Um, And the political parties were so stuck to their position. Mm -hmm. And then we would have these round table plenary Mm -hmm. positions. And and civic society was so much more kind of, you know, prepared to to discuss. You you mentioned there that the political parties were stuck to their, I suppose, Mm -hmm. their their Bible for want of a better word. But is that one of the problems that we, especially here, have? Is that everything seems to transgress back to green and orange no matter what the subject seems to be that we can't seem to you know be pragmatic and move forward in a modern constructive way i know i i i don't know what it is because I, you know i'm not a member of a political party now and i like the way when i was in the women's coalition um policies were made through uh, intense negotiations and discussions and working groups when it was difficult, whether it was like recognition of the police or on abortion, two issues that not everyone uh, in the party agreed with. But by the time the discussion had, had been had worked its way through yeah. and decisions had been taken, people um, you know, were prepared to accept it. <laughs> Whereas I, I feel that... In, in the Bill of Rights Forum, for example, there was one member of the working group on women who I know agreed with all of the issues, but because her party was against a Bill of Rights, couldn't, couldn't vote for any of it, and it was yeah. so frustrating. Yeah. And I suppose that is a good example, and I've maybe answered my own question here, what role can civic society play in shaping a new Ireland? I suppose, simply, hearing more from them. Yes, and I think also um, to let political parties see where people's thinking is going, what people want, because political parties, what they, I, I'm being cynical now, but they do care about their votes. Of course. And if they can see that their electorate has moved way beyond what they are, maybe that they'll do a bit of catch-up, because I think sometimes the parties, they're not being our leaders in fact, you know, that th- there have been a drag on that. They need to listen to what people are doing. I think people quite often have thought much more deeply about some of those issues. And I suppose if we look at uh, our history throughout the world, all real change probably has come from people speaking up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When, when you talk about 
I don't know, say the French Revolution, mm -hmm. for example, or the, or the Russian Revolution, you had the Bolsheviks, but you, you also had people calling for lands and uh, freedom and peace. Yeah. And that those were the initiatives that, that enabled the political organizations yes. to then seize on and organize after that. You also made the suggestion, Margaret, that there should be a North-South Assembly to consider issues around Irish uh, unification and a forced move towards a new Ireland. Could you elaborate on this and who would participate in this and what format should it take? Well, I was thinking about it in terms of, you know, when the Irish government had organised the Forum on Peace, when, you know, you did have people from the North come down and, and make representation that there has been some kind of uh, mechanism in the past to hear the voices of Northerners in the South. But we've moved way, way beyond that now. Um, and, and the notion that there'll be a united Ireland or a new Ireland is now um, something that, you know, 20 years ago maybe have seemed, you know, not worth talking about other than amongst a, a few very green people who might be more hopeful about it coming about in the immediate mm -hmm. future than others. But now I think, that, you know, We've got an opportunity, there's such a range of people. I mean, you think of Jimmy Nesbitt, the actor, being interviewed recently and talking about um, a group that he hopes to set up around New Ireland. I mean, a united Ireland, as he says, is kind of off-putting for many. Um, but it, the idea of a new Ireland, I think, starts to, starts to make people think differently. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and not in the same kinds of boxes that we've been in. I suppose that's one of the reasons why we, as a shared Ireland project, thought about our name. Yes. Because, you know, in my vision of a new Ireland, it has to be a shared a Ireland. A shared Ireland, yeah, indeed. In, in all its senses. And, and that's, you know, that has to, format has to bring everyone along on the journey and everyone, as far as I'm concerned, needs to participate in the conversation because without engagement from all sections of society and political thinking and religious beliefs, then there is the possibility that people can be left behind. And I suppose that'll serve nobody any good as we move forward. And also I think that there are probably a lot more people thinking from, say, a unionist perspective or who had been unionist than we know about. For example, I know that Jim Dornan has, Professor Jim Dornan, a couple of times has said now that there are many more people that he knows who would have been unionist who are no, no longer. The, he says he's made the transition from soft unionist to soft nationalist. And Jim actually spoke at the Waterfront Hall yes, that we indeed. spoke about yeah. a couple of minutes yeah. ago. Yes, yeah. that's right. So I've heard him there and I've heard him in other mm -hmm. um, arenas as well. So I think that if if because the southern government has a mechanism to um, convene citizens' assemblies, mm -hmm. why not do one that has a north-south dimension mm -hmm. to it? But I suppose, what would you call this? And, and I know some people might say, well, what you call it is irrelevant. But as you alluded to there, wording is mm -hmm. very important. So, you know, you couldn't probably call it an all-iron forum because that would possibly give out the wrong message. Yeah. Um, I think it was Jeffrey Donaldson or Mike Nesbitt said to me recently in a Shared Ireland podcast that unionism wouldn't sit around the table to purely talk about Irish unification because obviously their elected 
probably wouldn't want them to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the wording and terminology that we use is vital as we move forward. Would you agree with that? It is, but I'm not thinking of having politicians around this. I mean, as a citizens' assembly, you know, we've got to get beyond the political parties okay. who maybe don't feel so constrained. So, And, and we're talking about the real um, life issues. So we're, we're saying to people, well, let's talk about a health uh, system yeah. and service. Let's talk about um, the finances. Let's talk about a future economy. Let's talk about what is our vision Police for service, a future. Education. Yeah. yeah. And so it's on really practical and, issues. And, and, and who would this assembly make these recommendations to? Would it be to the Irish government, the British government? You know, what, 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 who would they be answerable to? Well, I don't know if they have to be answerable as much as they can put these things out there because so many people are looking at issues like, say, the British subvention. Is that really, you know, what the British say or, you know, can that be whittled down? It's not as much, it doesn't seem to be such an insuperable problem that, you know, that the, that the southern government would be inheriting this debt or what happens to pensions, for example, and who pay them. Um, those can just be, some of those are like technical issues, let's just really look at them and let's get in, I mean the, the Bill of Rights Forum for example brought in experts on different areas to advise so you could have the Citizens Assembly that is also then supported to bring in experts to to, yes. to advise on experts all of these things in their field. Because, yeah. you know, we're talking round and round and all of this, but it does have something that's really structured and supported. And, 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 but it's only the base. And, and then, you know, things can go forward because this is a process that we're not talking about just will finish in the next couple of years, but it has to start. Have you read um, Fianna Foyle Senator Mark Daly's recent report on his research that he did from independent sources on the New Ireland? I, I, very quickly, but yes, I'm aware of it. Yes, but so you could bring in a lot of things like that. Yes. Um, so that, that you know that they're brought in and and they're part of you know people are all aware of it then. And there's economists like Paul Paul, Paul Gosling who's also written about. So David that. McCann knows a lot about things, I guess. Yeah. And, and uh, there's a, a wealth of knowledge. There out is. There, there is um, the economist or, David McWilliams. And, and David McWilliams, and, sorry, yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. In October, Margaret, there will be a referendum in the south regarding presidential voting rights. And I suppose Mary McAleese, one of Ireland's most recognisable and successful presidents in terms of her achievements, famously could not vote for herself in the presidential campaign. What would it mean to you if voting rights were, I suppose, extended to Irish citizens currently not living in the South? Yeah, I, I can see that you know there are a lot of people who are worried about it in terms of the diaspora and how far it would go, um, it might support people who are, you know, less progressive or less aware of Irish issues who've been out of the country for a long time. But I feel as somebody with an Irish passport, um, it, it, it's deeply symbolic in terms of, of seeing people as part of an Irish nation. Mm. Um, you know, so that, for example, the last um, presidential election, we were watching the debates very closely on RTE, but, you know, but you knew you didn't have any uh, yeah. input, input into it. Yeah. And uh, certainly if there's a, a, a northerner standing, 
um, it, 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 it make, exacerbates it when it you does. feel you can't it brings it vote. Home. It does bring it yeah. home, then, mm-hmm. that there's division. And, and, and who do you think, you mentioned Irish passport holders there, and I think that's an interesting one. Mm. So, you know, I'm assuming people living in the north will be allowed to vote. But who else should these rights be extended to? Should it be all Irish passport holders? Well, that's what, you know. How, how do you how do you uh, legislate for that? That's what I do. That's why people find it kind of controversial. Is it going to be something that's simply limited on an all island basis, or is it extended to the fact that so many people work in Britain, for example? Um, who who are Irish, who come from the island of Ireland, who maybe are in Britain because they haven't been able to find work in Ireland, yeah. you know, and would like to return yeah. and be able to vote in the presidential election is at least symbolic of that, you know, knowing that you're there and, and that you're part of it. But then what do you do with America, Australia, mm-hmm. etc.? Exactly. Which is difficult, which is why I think, you know, that needs to be carefully thought about it. And even people who are in those... Um, countries aren't necessarily all wanting to vote or feel that they should vote because they feel they don't know the issues enough. Uh, and depend on who is eventually allowed to vote mm. in forthcoming presidential yeah. elections. Do you think this will have an important factor to play in a potential future border poll that the same demographic and people mm. will be allowed to vote in it that will be agreed to be allowed to vote in the presidential elections. I, 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 I didn't explain that I'm very not quite well. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it could be who who votes is like a proxy for um, who might vote yes. for a you know in a border poll. Yeah, that, that was a better way of phrasing it. <laughs> right, right. Yes, because you know you, you know voting isn't compulsory. You're only going to vote if you sort of feel you want to and you're mm. part. Of all of that, so yeah. if you don't vote, yeah. so it would be very interesting to see in terms of the figures. What's um, required, Margaret, to create a truly shared Ireland? And I understand that's a very simple question, but um, could take us weeks to mm. fully explore. I know. But, but your yeah. vision of a shared Ireland, what is required to create that? It's, it's so hard, isn't it? Because you know, it really depends on the people. You know, if 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 we can't even have um, uh, a football team, that's you know an all Ireland one that people are prepared to have Ireland say never winning the World Cup because really it's unlikely given we're a tiny country yeah. with two football teams um, as opposed to rugby, um, cricket, um, cricket. Yes, there's we a so lot of many rowing. Yes. Um, which has done huge amounts. I know from my own children who, who've been, you know, involved in all Ireland sports, how important it is. Yeah. Um, so, I think that the football one is like a proxy. Maybe uh-huh. you know, if we could ever get to that, I think we could get quite far along the idea of what a shared Ireland would be like. I won't hold my breath on the football one. I know. <laughs> well, we'd have a shared island and still have two two football teams. Yeah, that is you know. But, you know, I mean, for example, when, when um, the PSNI were being formed and there was all that discussion on, you know, symbols, well, mm. you know, we just, by, by throwing everything in practically, mm. you know, you got, you got something that people felt 
brought in the different um, identities into something new. But I, I sometimes think, well, you know, part of it, a new shared Ireland might be that, you know, you just throw, let's throw everything out and then see what we could bring in or we bring in different things. Like, I don't know, the trade union movement under Connolly had the starry plough for its flag um, and that was a brilliant um, flag for the trade union movement. You know, why can't we think differently so that we, you know, we're not stuck on symbols but we can start to be creative and think about you, new you, things. You mentioned flags there and I suppose... Um, the season that we're in, mm. and given the, the controversy that usually surrounds that subject, especially here in the north, in a new Ireland, like obviously, you know, everything, as you say, will have to be open for negotiation. So, in your opinion, does that include the Irish flag? Does that include the Irish national anthem? You know, does that include everything? I think it has to, because, you know, otherwise what we're saying is that... Um, some things are kind of declared sacrosanct and you can't negotiate with them. So people will then say, well, what do you mean by negotiation? If you say that, then we're going to say this. Yeah. And we're immediately then at a standoff. Mm -hmm. So I think that people have to be really generous and say, it doesn't mean that, you know, maybe the Irish flag won't be agreed in the future, but it might say that you start off by saying, we're going to say everything's, you know, off the table. Let's just see what we can bring back in or what else might need to be created. I think created. that's what Leo Varadkar basically said two weeks ago. Right. In a statement that, you know, everything has to be up for negotiation yeah. and there should be no preconceived ideas yeah. of what is going to be... I think so. And that could be a very hard pill for some people to yeah. take, but... Yeah. You know, I don't know how you have negotiations if you've got some things on the table that are not negotiable and you haven't started. How can nationalists, Margaret, reassure unionism that a new Ireland won't be a cold house for them? I know what it's, practical it's, steps yeah. can they do or say? It's hard because, um, you know, uh, you've both got the memory of what happened to nationalists in, in, in the six counties which was an extremely cold house for them. And, you know, there's no denying that, you know, there's all the evidences there and, you know, it's been, been admitted. And that were difficulties for um, Southern Protestants and the development of the Irish Free State, although I think um, research now is saying that it's, you know, it wasn't as difficult. They certainly economically still managed to, to, to um, because many of them were in a superior economic position that didn't that didn't change um, so it's not you know it's not that if we have a united ireland all of a sudden people are going to be going to have to suffer for it um, it might be that we have to we have to think of what of what is most dear to people who now would define themselves as unionist in terms of their traditions and, and what can be accommodated. Um, but I would like to see a secular Ireland so that we don't have, um, you know, in terms of education, for example, we don't have any um, religious uh, influence and, you know, things like that. We could start agreeing on that. That is hard for people in, in you know, many denominations. But I think we start off like that and strip away 
some of the influences and see where we go from there. Okay. Thomas, what's the best bit of advice you've ever been given, Margaret? That's a really, really hard question. And I don't know if I've ever been given sufficient advice. I probably, you know, there are times in, in my life where I might have appreciated advice and didn't get it. But can I, can, the, I, can I maybe change the question then? What advice would you give to a 21-year-old version of yourself? I think well, to believe in yourself, um, I suppose I did. I had a very hard time when I was about that age um, in terms of, say, being a student wanting to study women's issues. I was never taught by a woman, for example. I had no role models. When I wanted to research Irish women, I was told Irish women hadn't done anything. That's why they weren't being researched. That's why nothing had been written been on them. Of so, you know, I had a really... Um, push for that I don't so I, I sort of hope that young women today don't have the same problems that they had but I think that women who think they don't need feminism this is what I would say to young women you wait until if you have children and you wait and see how your life is structured then and you wait and see whether you're as free to make decisions about your life then as you are as a young single woman, that actually the equal pay divide starts the minute you graduate from university and things get worse if you want to have a family. Um, so if you might think that feminism is passe, it isn't, um, and, and life experience will show you that, but start now as a young woman. I remember somebody saying once, um, and I won't be able to quote them accurately here, but you don't miss your rights or don't need rights until you haven't got them. Exactly. Indeed. Indeed. Okay, we're coming near the end here, um, Margaret. We're 50 minutes into this podcast. So um, there's a couple of wee questions we always ask everyone before we um, end. Who do you admire? Um, well, if I'm talking about people um, in the contemporary, I would say Monica McWilliams as somebody who um, has been a, a, a fantastic academic uh, one of the first to highlight um, domestic abuse of women, um, uh, a political strategist in terms of the Women's Coalition, a, a great speaker, um, somebody very principled who then, when she's gone on to other roles, I mean, it's, it's really, you know, it's somebody I would call a fearless woman in the way that she has stood up to um, difficult forces and maintained uh, a, a focus on, on women and, and women's issues. And, and, and has challenged men in um, paramilitary organisations nowadays as to why they're still in existence. Okay. Final question. If you could invite three people, alive or dead, to your fictional dinner party, who would they be and why? Um, I'd have to have Hannah Sheehy Skeffington because would. I would love to talk to her <laughs> and find out, you know, how she went about things and get tips from her. Mm-hmm. And, and as a Belfast woman, I would love to have Mary Ann McCracken, okay, somebody yeah. from a Protestant, Presbyterian, radical tradition, you know, and also somebody who would have described herself as a feminist who read Mary Wollstonecraft, um, somebody who, you know, obviously supported her brother and the United Irishman, but, and, and, and was an anti-slavery campaigner. You know, so somebody who never changed, you know, who worked for, for children's welfare. That would be a great discussion. 
and um, you have to show a bit and, of balance here. And I, I am <laughs> exactly. You, you just read my mind, James Connolly. Oh, very good. Woman is the slave of the slave, as he said. Somebody again who was a feminist, a supporter of suffrage, uh, a Labour socialist, etc. He would be a brilliant addition. And so I think it would be a wonderful conversation. That sounds like a smashing dinner party. Yeah, and I would love to join it yeah. myself. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, Dr. Margaret Ward, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you for giving up your valuable time. And I know that our listeners will really enjoy listening to what you had to say. And um, I personally thoroughly enjoyed it. So on behalf of Shared Ireland and our listeners, thank you very much. Thank you. I enjoyed it.